book of Jeremiah, reading for scripture this for our sermon this morning. Scripture reading is Jeremiah chapter two, verses one through thirteen. If you're finding that, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the very word of God. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find with me when they, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us into the wilderness, in a land of desert and pit, deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord God, this this warning through Jeremiah is stern and serious. And though we were not the originally intended audience, there is still much for us to learn from this warning that you gave to them. We ask now, Lord, that you would open our hearts to learn from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think I have to tell you that there is seemingly a never-ending stream of content with regard to sports in this country, and there's always a need to fill time, and so one of the things that comes up occasionally to fill that time is a debate over what is the worst trade that has ever been made, and of course this sparks a debate between people, and As we reach the end of the football season, it would seem that it probably isn't a good idea to trade a lot of draft picks for an aging quarterback or one who is suspended. That hasn't worked out well for people. 
And yet, even those probably aren't the worst trade that had ever been made. They're not on the order of, say, Nolan Ryan for Jim Fergosi or Babe Ruth to the Yankees and the Red Sox. And though this, these debates are things that people seem to get very animated over and argue about, they are about sports. And even though that often commands a disproportionate amount of our time, it is not really of great temporal significance, let alone eternal significance. In contrast to that, our passage deals with a trade of tremendous eternal significance against which all these other trades pale in comparison. The trade in question here is Israel's exchange of the one true God for the false gods of the nations that were surrounding them. This is the worst trade in human history, and it was one that they kept making literally for centuries. We're going to look at the case that Jeremiah lays out here against Israel. First, we're going to examine the infancy of Israel's relationship with the Lord. And then we're going to look at the infamy of Israel's infidelity. And finally, we're going to take a few moments to consider what trades we might be making. But first, before we enter into that, I want to take a couple of minutes and consider the call of Jeremiah himself. I have found for a long time the call of Jeremiah and his ministry to be fascinating, even among other prophets, because Jeremiah is distinct from other prophets. Unlike most of them, with maybe the exception in some small ways of Ezekiel, Jeremiah is going to live through the terrible things that he will foresee for Israel. Now you can contrast this to say Isaiah, who in chapter 39 prophesies the conquest of Jerusalem by Babylon to Hezekiah after emissaries from Babylon came and saw all that was within, all the treasure that was within uh, Jerusalem and with uh, that uh, Hezekiah um, that Hezekiah had. Now, it, the difference is that Isaiah makes it clear that this conquest isn't going to happen in Hezekiah's lifetime, but rather in the lifetime of his children. And Hezekiah responds, "Well, that's a good thing," which always made. Hezekiah come off rather badly in my eyes actually that you know he as long as the disaster doesn't happen during my lifetime I don't care if it happens during my children's lifetime uh, but Jeremiah is different he's the same in some ways he's disbelieved in his own time by the majority of Judah and he's asked to do things that personally represent the doom that is to come in dramatic fashion, such as having to wear a yoke in chapter 27, which represents the two generations of Israel that will live under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. And as we encounter Jeremiah here, obviously it's at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, and this happens just after his call to the office of prophet, which he like Moses before him, resisted, saying that he was only a youth and he doesn't really know how to speak properly. 
Well, in our passage, he is laying out for Israel exactly what God says to him. He's laying out the beginning of God's indictment against Judah, which itself will carry all the way into chapter 6. And as he always does, Jeremiah obediently transmits these words of judgment and pending disaster, even though he's going to be caught up in this disaster that's going to sweep through Jerusalem. And he begins by looking backwards at the infancy of Israel's relationship with the Lord. Now, God's word to Israel through Jeremiah begins, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. Now, such an opening statement reflects actually a couple of things. The first of which is the patience of the Lord. Because the wandering through the wilderness included two of the most notorious incidents of Israel's disobedience. That they constructed the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. And then later, the faithless report of the spies in Numbers 13 and 14. And we'll touch on both of those a little bit later. But if it reflects the patience of God that he could look back on that time in the wilderness as a good time, well, it also reflects just how bad Israel has truly become. Because if a chapter in their history that includes those two incidents is remembered fondly, how bad are they now? And God recounts how he protected Israel during those days. He calls Israel his first fruits and says that anyone who would seek to devour those fruits would have disaster come upon them. In other words, God protected Israel from all enemies. And the end of that wandering was him delivering them into a land that was far from a land of drought, darkness, and pits, but rather a land of plenty that they were free to enjoy in peace so long as they remained faithful to the Lord. And the time such as this is epitomized by Joshua's final address to Israel, where he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And all of Israel says, we will do likewise. And of course, that is followed immediately by the book of Judges, where they do no such thing. But such a time was revived under the kingship, under David, and especially under Solomon, which really have to be counted as the salad days of Israel, where there was unprecedented peace and prosperity for them. But even here, mixed right in with the retrospective of Israel's youth, it's the beginning of the charges that God lays against Israel for the infamy of their infidelity towards him. On the, Israel, on the heels of the call of Israel to hear what the Lord has to say, the charges will begin in verse 5, where the first imagery of this trade which Israel has made is brought to us. 
Here it's said that their fathers, even in the midst of plenty and peace, had gone far from the Lord and pursued worthlessness and become worthless. Now, such a turn of phrase gives us a glimpse into the ironic dynamic of idolatry. As Israel pursued idols, they became like the idols themselves. Like the idols that were deaf and blind creations of humans, Israel slowly became spiritually deaf and blind as they pursued these false foreign gods. And the good land which God gave them was itself defiled in this pursuit. The heritage that God gave them was spoiled. Famine and foreign invasion became regular occurrences. And those who were charged with Israel's spiritual well-being, well, they're at the heart of the problem. Those who should know the law of the Lord don't even know the Lord himself. The shepherds have transgressed against the Lord, and the prophets have prophesied by Baal, which continued into Jeremiah's day. In an emphasis of the charge pursuing worthlessness and becoming worthless, God says that all of this was in pursuit of things which do not profit. And the consequence of all this is that instead of protecting Israel, God will contend with both Israel and their children. And in justifying his contention, God tells Israel to Look from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, to the west of Israel, to Kedar, which would have represented the far east of Israel, and see if there has ever been something like this before, that a nation has changed its gods. In other words, you can search the world over And you'll never see an ancient abandoning its gods, even though their gods were mere human handiwork. And what God is saying is that Israel has committed an act of infidelity that is unknown even to the pagan nations around them. Even though those nations' gods place harsh conditions on them, like burning their own children in sacrifice, Even though those nations' gods were defeated repeatedly by the one true God in battle, like when he wiped out the entire Assyrian army, 185,000 were told, at the gates of Jerusalem, those nations, even in spite of all of that, remained true to their gods. So what God is saying here is that Israel hasn't simply violated his commandments but they failed to live up to the standards of the world around them. This is much like Paul's charge against the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, where he says that it's reported that there is sin among you, and sin such that even the pagans won't have anything to do with it. That's how brazenly Israel has sinned against God. And the substance of this horrible trade is summed up by 
Israel, by God saying that Israel has committed two evils. The first is that they have exchanged their glory for that which is, does not profit, which is the second time that God characterizes their return on this trade as something which does not profit. It is God himself who was their glory, who provided for their prosperity and defense, and they traded him for nothing other than his anger. And secondly, they are said to have exchanged the fountain of living waters for a cistern that can't even hold water. And the immense gulf between those two things is probably at least partially lost on us. Because in an arid land, the importance of a water supply simply cannot be overstated. And I would say probably none of us have known real thirst in our lives. Even now, I have a glass of water down here. Should I become thirsty or start coughing? And this is something that is really difficult for us to imagine. A number of years ago, Wendy and I went to Las Vegas in July, which I will readily admit was my idea. And the afternoon highs were bumping up against 110 degrees. And after walking around outside for a little bit, I felt an urgency to get water that I have never felt in my entire life. I felt like I was about to pass out if I didn't get water immediately. And Las Vegas in July is a small window into what was a daily struggle for wandering through the wilderness in Jeremiah's day. Water is life itself. Finding a source of it was an absolute imperative. And land without water was simply worthless. Under most circumstances, such in, under such conditions, you'd be happy to have a well from which to draw. And cisterns were structures, bowl-like structures that they built to, to store rainfall for future consumption. And if by some chance you had a spring that brought water all the way to the surface, well, you had something that was precious indeed. God is presented as something beyond even that, as a fountain of living water. Now, if that sounds familiar, Jesus himself claimed to, be a, to provide such living water in John chapter 4 and later in John chapter 7. We see in that that as God is called the fountain of living water and Jesus provides living water, Jesus is in a way, making a claim to be God himself. And somebody had, somebody in the Middle East had a fountain of living water. They would have something of infinite value. And yet Israel is said to have exchanged such a fountain for a broken cistern that isn't even capable of holding whatever water falls into it. It's without a doubt the worst trade in human history. And God is exacting judgment on those who've made it. And as boneheaded as it seems, it does raise one question for us. And that is, what sorts of trades 
are we making? It's a relevant question because Israel's infidelity should always serve as a warning to us. Because it's like a spiritual family history to us. If your father and your grandfather had both died early of heart disease, your doctor would look at your condition in a different light. And that our spiritual ancestors saw fit to abandon God is an indication of our capability to do the same. Passages like 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 3, which look back at the, most, at the two most infamous incidences of mass infidelity, the golden calf in Exodus 32, which 1 Corinthians 10 connects us to, and the failure to enter the land in Numbers 13 and 14, which Hebrews 3 ties us to. These are tied to uh, that these are tied to us should convince us of how we're connected to the worst impulses of Israel spiritually. In fact, Hebrews 3, 3 chapter 12 says this to us. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God just like Israel fell away from the living God. And the writer of Hebrews warns further in chapter 6, talking about those who have left the faith once, apparent, even though at one time they were apparently earnestly a part of it. And the writer gives no hope for such individuals and uses the occasion to exhort the following, and we desire to see each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And it's such that what we should get out of passages like Jeremiah 2 is a greater diligence in our pursuit of holiness should be motivated even by God's words to Israel. And as God was a fountain of living water to Israel, Jesus is all the more to those of us who believe. Consider what he said in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, Jesus has now been glorified. And we have that Spirit. In other words, we have all the spiritual resources we need, but we need to be diligent in our application of them. The first question of our shorter catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And as you know, I, I suspect the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I ask you this morning, how are you doing in that pursuit? Is this morning your sole spiritual input for the week or do you 
daily seek to know God and live more fully for his glory. Do you get enjoyment as you're exposed to the things of God and learn more of him? If not, pray that he would through his spirit give you such enjoyment. That the word of God would become a joy to you. That the fellowship of God's people would become sweet to you. That the hope of heaven would occupy your thoughts and capture your imagination. This is my prayer for myself as well. We have Christ. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises. And to trade even a small portion of him for anything else would reproduce the error of Israel. So may God continue to work faith in each of us until we see him face to face. Let us pray. Lord God, we readily confess our tendency to sin as Israel sinned and to seek after other things in this world instead of you. Lord, would you become our heart's desire? Would you turn our affection such that we want nothing more than, to be, than you? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is number 538, Take My Life and Let It Be. Number 538, please stand with me as you're finding that. <clears throat>